0: It's been five years since Michael Franks delivered his last solo effort, Rendezvous in Rio, but it's not been in vain. During this time, he's been busy touring and collecting material for his most recent release, Time Together. You know his albums, The Art of Tea, Passion Fruit, Skin Dive, Birchfield Nines, Blue Pacific, and Dragonfly Summer. Along the path of his nearly 20-album career, he's collaborated with artists such as Larry Carlton, Joe Sample, Wilton Felder, David Sanborn, and so many more First Call musicians, Time Together doesn't fail in delivering the same high-quality work that Michael always gives us. Inside Music Cast welcomes one of the most proficient and enduring talents in jazz today, Michael Franks. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for
0: having me. Hey, Michael,
2: first of all, congratulations uh, once again on your uh, on your most recent album called Time Together. And it's, it was released on, uh, is it uh, Shanachi Records?
1: Yeah, I... Uh... Think it's Shonaki. Shanaki, Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I've always I've I've read the the label for a long long time. I mean, there's guys like Incognito, Patty Austin, Keiko Matsui, who is a past guest of ours, Huge Groove, and whatever. But I mostly remember it as the label that the Chieftains were on, and especially a lot of reggae. So I maybe I never really got it read to me as to how it should be pronounced. But I've seen the the label for a for a long long time. It's it's a new a new change for you, right? It is.
1: I, I uh, I've been sort of the last couple of three projects I've just been licensing my records to Mm -hmm. different distributors so um, that seems to be a a much better approach for me you know just as a business model I was at Warner's for 24 years it's great you know not to to really have to be concerned with anything but um, I made a record after I was at Warner's I made a record for um, for Wyndham Hill and about the time the record shipped uh, Wyndham Hill got snorted up by I think it was RCA. That's which right. Then got snorted up by BMG. I think was the uh, was the procedure. <laughs> so there were, you know, there were coups, and you know, people lost their heads, and all. All unfortunately, all the people I worked with were gone, and almost instantaneously. So after that experience, you know, and I, I tried to buy the record back, and that failed. And uh, after that experience, I said, you know, what? I think I'm going to license them from now on.
3: I
2: think you're probably not alone in experiencing that same type of uh, uh, feeling with a lot of labels. We've spoken to several artists who, you know, sort of feel like, well, gee whiz, this is the crossing of the roads. So I've, I've got to dive into my own and, and really make something of it if I'm going to make it uh, work my way because everything's – it's a new, whole new world, right? It sure is. Yeah. Time together is a new recording of new material it 's been f- f- five years, but we be- we believe we 've been discussing this. Is this your twentieth or close to album eighteen or twentieth album that you 've uh, produced, not including the anthologies and that type of thing
1: Yeah, I think it might be eighteen or nineteen I'm, okay i 'm not quite sure
2: yeah yeah well it 's been five years, but you kept us waiting, but th- thanks for delivering've we've, uh, <laughs> we've been holding out haven I mean, 't you you 've heard that before right
1: <laughs> well I, I, you know i I, uh, I really enjoy writing as much as ever, more more actually than ever, and uh, but I do, um, you know, notice that it's taking me a lot longer to <laughs> collect enough stuff, you know, to record, but I enjoy it, you know, I really enjoy it just as much as I ever
0: did. Well, Time Together, uh, you know, has, has such a nice, you know, laid-back, jazzy groove, and in fact, um when I was listening to it, I was thinking to myself that, you know, the music doesn't really in, in, in any way overpower your lyrics. You know, it feels really balanced, you know, between, you know, the piano, horns, guitars, your vocals. It's, it's such a nice project.
1: Thanks. It was, it was, I got to work with, um, well, I worked with everyone with whom I worked I had worked with before. So that's kind of nice to have the continuity of producer arrangers.
0: I was just thinking about some of the people that you've you worked. Uh, you had a few producers for this album, we noticed. You had Charles uh, Blenzig and Gil Goldstein and Chuck Loeb and uh, I think it's Scott, P- is it Scott? Scott Petito, P- yeah. Petito, yeah, and and bassist Mark Egan. And, you know, we'll be honest with you, the project is is so consistent throughout that we wouldn't have detected the fact that there were several producers on hand for this mm-hmm. project.
1: Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, I think the fact that I'm writing everything and singing everything, you know, it, it, it's pretty easy to... To uh, keep that thread alive through the whole thing, but um, it, there there were some considerations, especially with sequencing stuff. I, I found this record was a little harder to sequence because uh, you know I, I I wanted to spread out the things that were similar. I didn't want to put them close together and uh, try to get the soloists a little bit spread out as much as I could. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, it's, that, that's always kind of an issue, sequencing at the end. But otherwise, no, it's been it's been a very smooth um, method for me to work with different producers. I started it um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: back when I was still on Warner Brothers, actually, in the in the uh, early 90s.
2: Tell us a little bit about your breakdown of the, of the recording. Sequencing, uh, did you track anything live uh, with any of the few players? It sounds, it almost sounds like a tracked section. It really does. And I, I really like it when I uh, I am fooled a little bit as to, boy, was this a session piece or just sequenced, you know?
1: Well, everything, well, um, I should say six of the 11 tunes, uh, seven of the 11 tunes were live.
3: Okay, well, that's nice.
1: Um, and uh, Chuck Loeb started all of his stuff at his home down in South Carolina, and then, sort of, you know, we sort of shared the files around the world. Actually, we we uh, sent them to um, <coughs> Till Bronner, a great trumpet player who mm-hmm. lives in Germany, with whom I had worked in the past uh, touring in Europe. And uh, and Eric Marienthal out on the West Coast played mm-hmm. on, Ch- on Chuck stuff, and uh, Willie sang some background parts for me, played a little bass. So that worked out really well. Four of the things were recorded that way. Yeah. Um, but the seven others were all sessions, which was really great to get to get in to That's be cool. back in that style of recording for mm-hmm. me. I really enjoy that. And yeah. you know, encouraging the musicians to you know, express themselves and, and make their own personal contributions.
0: Yeah, you just mentioned the name Till Bronner, and uh, Uwe Reif is a German correspondent for Inside Music Cast, and you know he, one of his questions was is he'd love to know something about your collaboration with uh, with Till and, and how you guys met.
1: Yeah, well, we met. Um, uh, Till was in a group called Reunion, and I I, I was a, it was um, you know a really nice band, and, and um, they asked me if I would come and, and just be kind of a guest vocalist for uh, some dates they were doing in the Canary Islands and, and in Spain. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, Chuck Loeb was also in the group, Mm -hmm. and um, so it was was really easy for me. I just went over and sang. I think about four or five songs, and (laughs) just that, just you know, sat and listened to all the great stuff they were playing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, it was great to work with Till. He had recorded. I think the lady wants to know he had recorded. The lady wants to know a while back, and heard his version of that. And was you know, it's always nice when somebody covers one of your tunes.
2: Yeah. Michael anybody who knows of your music and and we know your music pretty well um and so do, so do our listeners and they know of your love for you know obviously uh, uh Brazilian bassa, jazz samba and and uh you didn't really deter from injecting some of those feels into this project and they reflect a lot of your feelings of of uh of your influences and uh tell us a little bit about uh the uh you know your Brazilian and bossa nova and and samba influences of of how you grew up listening to that and what, what who were your influences
1: Well I think well, the first thing that hit me I, I was uh, I was an undergraduate at UCLA mm-hmm. way back in uh, 1963 and I remember hearing some of the, you know, Getz, Gilberto stuff yeah. and just being completely stunned and, you know, astonished by, by it because it seemed I had always, you know, I would lo- I always loved jazz. My parents were, were jazz heads when I was growing up and I always heard a lot of it. But, um, and, and, you know, jazz vocalists too in their collection, but, um, the Brazilian music when I first heard it it was mostly the Jobim compositions just seemed so unpredictable and the journey of the melody would be would be so unlike the material I was used to which was basically you know the great American songbook you know Cole Porter right you know Johnny Mercer you know Yip Harburg and all the great people whom I still very much admire and have continued to admire all these years and Tried to imitate, but uh, when I first heard that Brazilian stuff, I was totally blown away, and, and so I had been a fan from then on. And uh, of course, later in life, I got to spend some time with Jopi, and, and, right. and have him really be kind of a you know a, a friend for for several years, which was so great. And uh, he he actually invited us down to Brazil where we recorded about half of Sleeping Gypsy. Yeah. Right. And uh, so but I still I you know I love Marcos Valley and, and yeah. so, so Fonseca and like just you know, I still love Brazilian music. I listen to all the, the newer guys and yeah. I think their music is great too.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a marvelous music. And, you know, it's, like I said a little earlier, you know, uh, a lot of the tracks in this, on this new project of yours uh, reflect that tone. In fact, uh, one of the tracks, the first one, now that the summer is here, uh, it was arranged by Chuck Loeb. And I can't really say enough about this opening composition. Um, you give plenty of time, uh, you as you addressed uh, just a couple seconds ago, for solos. And on this opening track, Eric, Eric uh, Marienthal, Till Bronner, and, uh, and Loeb, They have some amazing uh, performances. Tell us a little bit about uh, this track here.
1: Well, uh, I live up in Woodstock, New York, and um, I've lived in New York since 77. Mm -hmm. I love New York. Originally moved, my wife and I lived in the city for a long time. And uh, we started coming up to Woodstock on weekends, and eventually we said, well, why don't we live in Woodstock and, and commute down to the city whenever we want to. Yeah. Uh, so we've been up here quite a few years. I think we moved up in 79 and, you know, being a native California, I grew up in La Jolla and, you know, um, I still find winter somewhat, you know, challenging. I, I've, I've learned a lot of winter sports and winter activities, which Uh I enjoy a lot, but, uh, there's nothing like the inspiration of, you know, Four feet of snow on the ground. You know, to, to encourage you to start thinking about summer, and so right. I, I think that would, the, the summer songs of which I think there are at least two obvious ones with summer in the title, and then right. I think the um, song about hitchhiking around Europe when I was nineteen and, and going to Saint Tropez and, yeah, and right, the, right. the Bridget Bardot's was, you know, <laughs> uh, that was a summer one too. So I guess that was the first material I, I wrote. And um, and I just, you know, I had a feeling Chuck would be ideal for uh, now that the summer's here and, and summer in New York. Yeah. And um, so it was just a treat to have him play and Till play and, and Eric, they all played so beautifully.
0: Yeah, he was awesome, yeah. Guys, if you don't mind, I, I want to pause for a second, uh, give Michael a quick break, and uh, let's take a listen to the opening track on time together. This is Now That The Summer's Here.
4: I am reborn I need a week to mow the lawn I eat dinner with my flip-flops on Now that the summer's here With my chores I only flirt Hung in my hammock greeting Kurt, Struggling to remain inert Now that the summer's here now that the summer is here, I'll laze all day, my work can wait. At night behave like a firefly and isolate with my mate. late with my mate Mar Jamal Poinciana says it all now that the summer's here one thing is crystal clear. I won't be going anywhere except my Adirondack chair. Now that the summer's here now Now that the summer's here Now Now that the summer's here Now Now that the summer's here
0: Actually, just mentioned on the album uh, "One Day in Saint Tropez," uh, it's 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 another track that definitely you know paints a really vivid picture as, as you're listening, and, and your lyrics tell the story of a, a 1963 excursion to Saint Tropez, which is of course in the south of France, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's a neat story of a, a young guitarist who's who's asked asked to play, and and it's another uh, great track with Gil Goldstein uh, on piano and Greg Cohen on bass. Had you uh, collaborated with Goldstein and, and Cohen prior to this? Uh,
1: not with Greg but I have worked with Gil quite a bit in the past and, um, uh, Gil did some beautiful arrangements for me when I was still on Warner's back in the mid-90s. Did some beautiful stuff on a record called Abandoned Garden. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that no, was great to work with Greg Cohen. I hadn't ever worked with him before. And I have worked a lot with, uh, Romero Lubambo, who played such beautiful guitar yeah. on those tracks, on those Gil Goldstein tracks. And, um, yeah, that was that was a that was a lot of fun to also a great Brazilian percussionist who teaches at the State University of New York here hmm. in this area named Rogerio Boccato, who played some such beautiful percussion. We recorded those tracks, the Gil Goldstein produced tracks, we recorded those without drums, which was a first for me. Wow. And I was a little, you know, reluctant to do it that way, but um wow, Rogerio Boccato, the this percussionist was was uh, so great. He really, he really kept us. <laughs> he kept all of us in line.
2: Yeah. Explain a little bit about. You know, I've loved Brazilian, you know, samba and uh, you know music for for so long. Explain a little bit about the percussion aspect of it, because quite often the percussion seems very invisible or transparent, that it's almost even unnoticed. But when you get a performance that is this 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 wonderful, how we can really make the track, isn't that true?
1: It really can, and 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 some of the you know some of the percussion instruments mm-hmm. are Brazilian, and, and so that that immediately associates your ears with all the other Brazilian music you've heard, and you know creates uh, kind of a an obvious uh, style that you recognize. Uh, but I've worked in the past with a lot of great percussionists, not all of them Brazilian, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, in in Brazilian music. It's I, from the recordings I've made, which are I think inspired by bossa and, and samba. I've always tried to incorporate, you know, the great percuss the best percussionists I could I could find, and. Uh, I've been lucky to work with so many of the
2: great ones you know some of the tracks on on this new project are actually um there's sort of a continuum of of your <laughs> the way your style of injecting humor into a lot of the songs and and uh, one track in, in in particular stands out to me it's called mice and uh it's uh lyrically i think it's it's really fun. <laughs> I think you've done something really neat with it, but to balance the the humor in it your your chord progressions on this uh, on this track are really amazing, because uh, Mike Mineri, um, uh I think he was from uh, a band uh, that I've heard in the past called Steps Ahead, right? It's a sort of a fusion band. He used to be a part of that, but he participates in this and does a great job in the vibes.
1: Oh, yeah, Mike. Well, Mike, yeah. I, I first met Mike in 79, and he played some beautiful stuff on a record I made then called Tiger in the Rain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it was great to hook up with Mike again and with, uh, with David Spinoza, uh, with whom I had worked in the past quite a bit, too. And it was just great to have both of those guys on that cut. And then I got some beautiful vocal sort of uh, comments at the end by uh, Beth Nielsen Chapman, who, whom I met recently. We did a gig together somewhere, mm-hmm. and uh, I always loved her voice. And, and she she made these... She recorded, like, this beautiful little fade line that she harmonized. It's so beautiful at the end of the tune. Yeah, But no... Um, that song was really inspired by you know we we live in a house that was built in seventeen ninety one. Wow. So you know there there aren't many right angles left in it, and uh, and so every winter in the fall, late fall actually, when it starts to get cold, you know once there's a frost, the, the, the little mice who normally live outdoors always always try to come in. You know, and, and uh, it's like it's like going to Florida for them, I guess, you know, <laughs> and, try to come in and, and I, I have always been, you know, trapping them in these little Havahart traps, and then I take them out, I walk out with them, you know, whenever I get them, I walk out with them quite a ways to the edge of the property line. It's like a 12 acres, so it's far from the house, That's and I good. release them, you know, where, they, where they're not going to be, eat, you know, picked off by an owl right away, I put them someplace where they can, you know, hide. But then, you know, a week later, I find they look so similar. I really feel like, you know, tagging them to see if they're the same ones. Because they,
0: I can promise you they're the same ones.
1: Yeah, they're, they honestly are much smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. I can figure out how to traverse quite a bit of territory to get back to where they...
0: You're a
2: compassionate man.
1: Well, they're so cute. You know, they don't look anything like you're... you're they're they're kind of like... Uh, you know, an E B white mouse. You know what I mean? They're not they don't <laughs> exactly. they don't look like uh your your it's an eek a mouse, it's not that kind of thing at yeah, all. Right. These cute little deer mice they call them.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Obviously enough of an inspiration to write a tune about them, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so many great tracks on Time Together, you know, like I'd rather be happy than write. Of course, the title track, Time Together, There's Samba Blue, My Heart Says Wow, and, and, which, by the way, that's my personal favorite. And, nice and, and also, if I could make September Stay. You know. And out of these tracks, or any of the tracks in the album, was there one or two that were challenging in the recording process or, or just even in writing? I mean, um, just give, give us some ideas about the, the making of the album and if there were any, any hurdles.
1: Well, the, the song which um, I found the most difficult, actually, when it came time to record... You know it's always easy when when it's just me and garage band at home you know i can just (laughs) just sit in my room and and, uh it always seems so easy and then occasionally you get into the studio and you say my god who wrote this you know the intervals are sometimes difficult you know and you say wow i can't believe i wrote this and it was so easy to sing when I was just alone in my room, you know. But um, <laughs> the song that I thought was the most challenging in every way for me was, was one that I liked very much and one which actually was really easy to write, which is one called Charlie Chan in Egypt. All
3: right, It right. was a and, great track. Uh,
1: I normally write on the guitar recently. Was, well, recently, probably the last 15 years I've been trying to force myself to use the piano. And uh, I find that when I do use the piano, I I end up kind of reproducing what I'm hearing in my head, sort of much more accurately sometimes than I do on the guitar because I'm much more familiar with guitar. I play it more more often, and, and so I have a tendency to kind of cheat and go to you know similar you know places on the fingerboard that I would always go to, and mm-hmm. I don't always you know voice the chords the way I'm hearing them, you know, the way I'm hearing the harmony in my head. So when I was working on this one, I said, I'm going to stay on the piano the whole time. And it was kind of these dark chords for me, very unusual chords that would, n- would never have occurred to me on the guitar. Yeah. And uh, so once I got into that and sort of figured out the landscape of the song and how I wanted it to sort of, you know, Lay on top of that landscape. It was very easy. I, I wrote it probably in a few hours, and it certainly yeah. revised it. But but the basic idea kind of revealed itself once I got, mm-hmm. you know, once I sort of painstakingly arrived in this territory where I, where I was happy with it. Um, but then when we got into the studio, I found uh, for some reason we, we cut the tracks live, and uh, I was you know really happy with the way everything sounded. Uh, but when I came I sang with the band and I didn't like my vocals that I had sung, my live vocals too much. There were there were a few lines I think I kept from the live vocal and I replaced everything else, doubled the, the uh choruses so called. And when I was in the studio just, you know, with my with Scott Petito who's also my, you know, favorite engineer mm-hmm. uh it was so difficult to sing that song that I found the intervals were really challenging, and I actually had to go home a few times, you know, between sessions, and and uh, make a piano track of just the melody that huh. I was going to sing, and then sing with that track, you know, like it was because I just I would lose I would some of the intervals were so um, strange uh, for me. But I liked them so much. I wanted to be, you know, I didn't want to change them, you know. What yeah, I mean, right, I, I yeah, liked right. the ones that I originally wrote. So, so I really had to concentrate on that one. But it was a, you know, I felt like I really accomplished something when I got through with it, you know.
2: <laughs> so you sort of you challenged yourself. I mean, I mean, you out, you sort of outrode, outwrote your uh, capabilities until you had to come back and actually get it right. I mean, does that happen too often, or is that uh...
1: that has almost never happened? There've been Wow. Compositions where I felt you know they were like a say a pedal note that you have to sing like a really like a, a note at the bottom of my range, and uh you know I like to record those things early in the morning when you're you know when your voice is just naturally lower anyway mm-hmm. uh, sometimes live it's hard to hit those notes, especially if you 've done a you're singing like the second show somewhere, and for some reason your voice kind of moves. You know, you, the low end of your voice kind of uh, it just gets a little weaker somehow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the the mid range and the highs get better, you know, but because you're pushing pushing all this air. Um, but yeah, this is this was I think the first time that that really happened to such a degree. But I I really liked that song so much and felt like it was a totally mm-hmm. different kind of tune for me.
0: Yeah, it was a great track. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, guys, I want to stop for a moment, and uh, let's play this track. Uh, This is Charlie Chan in Egypt.
4: Tell me if you can, Doc. What's causing my depression? The fact we now engage in unprovoked aggression. These kids we're sending out defend our nation Come home completely shattered A broken generation I feel like a stranger In a strange land Can't reveal my secret
0: I was thinking about this. You've been recording and, and producing music for you know, like nearly 40 years now. And, you know, I was curious about how you keep up with your inspiration as a lyricist and, and of course, as a musician, too. But lyrically speaking, you know, how do, what does your inspiration generally come from?
1: Well, although I you know, apply liberal amounts of poetic license, it's all kind of personal and sort mm-hmm. of, you know, from experience, sometimes remembered things, mm-hmm. as in the case of One Day in Saint-Tropez. Uh-huh. And uh, other times, just you know, fortunately, inspiration just strikes you, uh, and you just hope it continues <laughs> continues to <Yeah>. strike you. <laughs> uh, but I have been taking you know much more time between projects, and and I'm, mm. I guess much more uh, critical of what I'm doing, and not so much critical as I I try hard not to repeat myself, you know, and. Uh, after all these compositions and all these years, it's, you know, it's it's more of a challenge, and I guess that's why it, you know, takes five years.
0: Well, you know, your, your lyrics are always, you know, so um, you're always painting a picture with your lyrics. I mean, you listen to a Michael Frank song, and you can just envision yourself there. Mm-hmm. Every time I hear it, I always... I always feel happy. <laughs> you know, generally speaking, there was always you're know, always taking us to a different place. And actually, our Chicago correspondent Brian Pearson wanted to know something in a similar nature. He said, "Speaking of imagery," he said, "Your connection to places like you know Sanibel Island, Brazil, and in upstate New York, you know, th- tell us how these places have uh, helped you create such a distinct style of painting songscapes."
1: Well, I think all the sort of tropical and subtropical locations are, are, you know, are really easy, Um,
3: you
1: know, uh, coming from La Jolla and kind of like, you know, living in this beautiful place and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like looking out at the Pacific Ocean every day growing up as a kid and going body surfing before school and stuff, you know, like um, really connected to the ocean and connected to the sun and the whole, you know, sort of. Idea of great weather and you know beautiful a beautiful scenery and so then in my travels I went to you know where I worked in Australia and on the way home my wife and I stopped in Tahiti for a couple of weeks and and so that kind of produced some some songs and and then uh, we'd been to Hawaii for a while had gone to go diving and so that that you know every place we've traveled to has been an inspiration just from its sheer physical beauty right you know and so that that's always a source of inspiration and and that's probably why the and brazil of course was you know was very much the same
0: mm-hmm. i've been to tahiti and to bora bora so i get it yeah <laughs> to the where i speak yeah the most beautiful places i've ever i've ever yeah. seen yeah.
2: <laughs> hey michael in 1973 um, i was like a sophomore in high school uh, and, um, you know, I was wearing, uh, just like a bunch of other young kids, uh, a horrible cologne called Brute. Uh, but okay. what a lot of uh, people didn't really recognize back then is that Brute, at that time, I had also had a record label of yeah. which your first, of course, your self titled first album in 73 uh, was recorded on. Please tell yeah. us that story, please.
1: <laughs> well, that was incredible. I, I had, uh, you know, I. I was actually teaching. I, I, I spent a lot of time at school.
3: Okay.
1: I always wanted to be, you know, involved in music. Mainly, I wanted to be a songwriter, I guess, more than anything. But I was raised, you know, with that sort of middle-class, you know, mantra drilled into your head of like, you know, you, well, you, you can do whatever you want, but you have to have a real job, and yeah. you know, it's something to fall back on, I think was the way my parents put it. And so, for me, that was teaching, and I you know, spent a lot of time in school. When I got out, I was teaching... Uh, part-time at UCLA at the Extension and uh, I had somebody in my class who who was involved in the music business he was a trumpet player and he you know I talked to him afterwards and it was so interesting to hear what he was up to he invited me to a few sessions and through, through him and through like visiting sessions and actually just being a fly on the wall uh, I met some people who were going to produce a record by these two old rural blues guys I loved I'd always loved named Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. And I'd always gone to see them whenever they were in the San Diego area.
3: Okay. Right.
1: And uh they had quite a routine, but they were great. I mean mm-hmm. Sonny Terry was a blind harmonica player and, and, and Brownie McGee was, you know, a, a, a crippled guitarist, you know. And um they had you know they had played with lead belly. They were from you know, from from the ages. These right guys. And so they were gonna. These people that I met through my student at UCLA, they they were gonna produce this record for them at A and M, and they were thinking about trying to get a deal at A and M for them. And Sonny and Sonny and Brownie had made 40 albums, <laughs> you know. So they <laughs> right. they were like they were not impressed with the idea of making records. Their idea of <laughs> of, of you know music was to play, you know, to to do gigs and make right, money right,
3: at gigs. Right. Right.
1: And some of their early records they had made, you know, for like a bottle of scotch and for a, ga- a tank of gas and stuff. You know? So <laughs> they, you know, they 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 had a whole different opinion of it. They weren't that enthusiastic about the idea. But uh, I heard about this and I said, I said, well, I want to try to get, you know, try to sell them to A and M. And so I just I, I just sat down and wrote a few tunes and I said, well. You know, I know that if they resort to their regular repertoire of the ancient stuff, you know, there's a good chance they probably won't get a deal, you know, because they've recorded that stuff maybe five or six times, everything, <laughs> you know. And so I said, um, well, they were going to do this with a rhythm section and everything. So I said, well, I wrote a few tunes and I gave them to these people I had met. And uh, one of whom is a great blues musician now, his name his name is Mo Rogers, yeah. uh, and he makes records now. Um And so I, you know, they were, they liked Sonny, Terry and Brownie McGee, they liked these tunes and they recorded one of them, which was called White Boy, Lost in the Blues. Right. And they got a deal at A&M and A&M was inspired by it, The whole idea, enthusiastic, I should say, by it. And so I ended up, they ended up recording all three of these tunes I had written for them on this record. (laughs) That's correct. I actually played on the record a little bit, which was amazing. Yeah, And, uh... So I kind of, you know, got into the music business as, through as a songwriter more than any. I can't remember what the question was. But yeah, no, I just was it. What was your question? Who cares? That's all right. This is going great. <laughs> <you know? laughs>
0: no, I think I think Eddie was talking about your your um, your first self title album that was on the Brute Oh yeah, Cologne. well, so yeah. Then,
1: the, well, well that, I'm glad you reminded me because that was the best part. So then, um, you know, that was great. I was I was you know, really happy I'd been involved with them. I actually played with them. and We did a little tour around California. And uh, then I went back to my life, and I was house painting, too, where I was making about four or five times more money than I was (laughs) part-time teaching. (laughs) So I I just basically, I guess maybe like six months went by or so. And all of a sudden, uh, I got a call from, Emma Terry, who was Sonny's wife, all of these people, you know, long since deceased. But and she kind of tried to, you know, watch over the the two of them, and and sort of, you know, she went on the road with them, and she she was kind of like their manager pro tem, I guess. Um, and she said, Michael, I, you know, well, Sonny and and Brownie made this little documentary film for a company in New York. About being in the studio, and they uh this company wants to start a record company, and you know they're looking for artists, and we gave them your demo, and they really like it. they want to talk to you so all this you know through through Sonny and Brownie, I got my record deal at this company brute, and that the story behind that was that <laughs> the guy who invented that company, George Barry, was his name
3: mm-hmm.
1: he had gone you know he had grown up in Queens, and he had gone door to door selling. Hairspray. You know, he had met somebody who was a chemist, and they had figured out this formula. My mother used to use this hairspray, <laughs> and you could actually bounce a ball off of his, <laughs> off of somebody's hair that had been sprayed with this you know. And uh, anyway, this guy, you know, created that whole company, Brute Fabergé, just really from his own, you know, like, really, his, Jeez. yeah. And he was he was, he was like a self made person, like to the max. Interesting. But he always wanted to be a songwriter, and this was his, you know, tragic flaw. And and so he wanted. He started this record company, and then he started a film company. Uh, he started just so he could get one of his songs on a film, which he eventually did. He he hooked up with Steve Kahn's father, Sammy Kahn, Yeah, uh, whom I got to know quite a bit uh, over the years. He hooked up with Sammy Kahn and wrote a song for a movie that they also produced. I think it was called touch of class it was with uh, the, the movie one of the people the woman i can't think of who was the ac- british actress who won the academy award for the movie and he actually got his song nominated, which was horrible except for you know sammy khan's part the lyrics but the music was was pretty you know pedestrian but anyway that's that's how uh, and of course you know then it was distributed by buddha which was kind of nice uh the late Neil Bogart was, was kind of enthused about the record. It got some it got some airplay here and there. There were a couple of cuts on, on my record that got some airplay. I did a tour with Robert Klein, which was a lot of fun.
0: That's um, right. That's cool. Uh, he was opening, he up, was
1: opening up for Robert Klein. He was, he was great.
0: And he was the only other artist on that Brute label, is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's
1: right. <laughs> but then, of course, it was, you know, I, I think like a year later, it was, you know, squirted out of the universe like a watermelon seed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was the end of that <laughs> yeah really and I was just you know floating I I, I, uh, I, I actually wrote some music for a picture at Warner's uh, Warner Brothers Pictures and the man I worked for there was kind enough to take me over to the record company which was still in those days on the picture lot in Burbank and I had you know I had written some more tunes and I, I just came over with my guitar and played the uh, about half the tunes that ended up on the Art of Tea I just sat there and played for Mo Austin and Lenny Walker and Al Schmidt. Al Schmidt and yeah. uh Tommy Lapuma,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um well, you know, we you're talking about uh, you're talking you're speaking of Art of T, correct? Right. Yeah, you you connected with some incredible players on on that first uh album. Yeah. Or actually your second. Well, your first with Warner Brothers, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Joe Joe Sample and Larry Carlton and Wilton Fel, Felder and uh of the Crusaders, David Sanborn, the Michael Brecker. I mean, what an incredible team of uh, musicians on that album.
1: Oh, it was. I mean, and I could thank Tommy LaPuma for that because he he said, well, what would your dream rhythm section be? And I, <clears throat> I said, wow. well, I love the Crusaders, but I, I also liked uh, Tom Scott and John Garren's band sure. at the, time, the LA Express. Yeah. And um, John Guerin, I I had met and he'd been really, really friendly and liked my tunes and, and I spent some time with him. He, he and Joni Mitchell were together at the time, so it was, it was quite a thrill to be hanging, you know, with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the once, you know, having uh, the the record, the you know, the self titled record I made before also had some really great players, you know, really really great musicians, studio players on that record too. So I always kind of, including Tom Scott, yeah, uh, I always, you know, was I was very blessed to be involved with all the great studio players, and to yeah. the fact that they, you know, were enthusiastic about my my songs and you know, my writing was 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 really a, a real advantage. But yeah, to start that way with Joe and and uh, Larry Carlton and yeah. and you know uh, John Guerin and then I had I had met uh, Randy and Michael Brecker just before we made that record, and I and I, I kind of asked for. For both of them, and I met David uh, Sanborn, too, right about that time, yeah. and so it was great to have, we recorded those uh, those tracks for the Art of Tea. Um, we overdubbed David and um, and Michael Brecker, oh, really? the tracks themselves, including all the solos, we recorded in 12 hours, which I can't even believe now when I think of that. Really? Yeah, well, we and had the... three, three days, yeah. we had two three-day sessions and one, six, uh, two, I should say, we had two, three-hour sessions and one six-hour session. And that was it. We recorded wow. all the tracks for the record and <laughs> it's amazing. You know, most of the vocals were live. Wow. And then we, we, we went in for overdubs. We, you know, we did some, uh, orchestral stuff, not much of it. We didn't keep much of it. Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and then we, we had some. I guess we had percussion, a little bit of percussion, and uh, Michael Brecker and David Sanborn, and that was it. Well, that's wow. and that's
2: amazing that, that it went uh, went down in in twelve hours. That's almost unthinkable. Um, but please, please tell me that you don't ever get tired of uh, of playing uh, or seeing your requests that are thrown out at you at shows. Popsicle Toes, Eggplant, Monkey See Monkey Do. Uh, you know, I never you,
1: do. You know those songs have been so kind to me. Yeah. Over the years, it's, uh, you know, like, and I've enjoyed so many nice covers, uh, you know, f- especially from those early records. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ringo even recorded uh, "Monkey," that's right. "Monkey," too, which that's was right. incredible. Uh, but yeah, no, and then so many great jazz singers have recorded this stuff over the years. Uh, that no, I, 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 uh, I'm always happy to sing the old things.
0: You know, I was I was six years old when I first heard the song "Popsicle Toes," yeah. and, and in fact, in fact, my mom <laughs> loved this song and she played it all the time. And her brother, my uncle, he, he dated a girl who he, for some reason, he nicknamed her "Popsicle Toes." She, she always walked around barefoot and you know, and kind of a hippie. So that song has long lasting memories for me. You know, when I was growing up, and you know, for you, obviously, this was this was uh, your first real break, I think, into the pop scene as a solo artist. And and the album, uh, that, of course, Art of Tea. That that album sort of paved the way for you into a long-lasting relationship with Warner Brothers, and this this has to be a, a pretty amazing amazing period in your career. And you know, this being only your second album garnering so much notoriety at that time. Yeah,
1: it was really amazing. You know, radio was so open in those days. Right, you'd, you'd hear so many you know different things on an album-oriented radio, progressive FM, and those formats were so um, amiable. Kind of, they were so willing to embrace. Different genres, uh, and so that was a big that was a big help for me with that. I, you know, the, the funny thing was that I played um, that day when I was uh, on the picture lot in the Quonset hut that the record company used yeah. to occupy. Uh-huh. And when I was just there with my guitar, playing tunes, I I really didn't play Popsicle Toes till the very end. And I had played all that stuff for Al Schmidt. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I was living in, in in Venice, California at the time, down by the beach. And had, and Al had come out to visit me, and I had played him all the same stuff that I played at this meeting. Uh-huh. And he said, "Play, play Popsicle Toes." And I, I and I was really reluctant to play because it just seemed so. Less relevant, kind of off the wall, you know. <laughs> uh, but I played it; they all loved it, you know. Yeah, and then, the cool. ironic, well, ironically, it ended up being like this single kind of experience. And I'll tell you, when I, I, w- I actually did Casey Kasem's Top Forty, the, the tune feel? got into the very, you know, high. Uh, the or I guess I should say low end of the Top Forty, the high numbers, you yeah. know, like in the, I think it got to thirty-seven, maybe. At yeah, that
3: point. yeah, that's cool.
1: And uh, so I actually did the Casey Kasem show which was just mind boggling. It was yeah. like, you know,
3: <laughs> just to like get on, trip. yeah. Right. <laughs>
2: Hey Michael, in the course of, of the records that you produced, uh, I've got a question. You know, what what kind of productions do you really prefer? I mean, you've had you have jazzy projects like Passion Fruit. You have more technical and uh, electronic. You know, Read My Lips and the Camera Never Lies, or your the the soul your soul Brazilian flavor. How do you you know back away and say mm, I, I I like this better, or I enjoy this more, or is that not even a fair question?
1: No, that's a, no, that's a fair question. I think you know. The, I made three records with Rob Mounsey, and um, yeah. and I think I, well, the first was Passion Fruit, I think that was 83, and mm-hmm. then we did, um, let's see, Cameron Never Lies was 87, and yeah. we did Skin Dive, I think, in 85, so oh, yeah, it was 83, great. 85, 87. Um, I worked with Rob on all, all through that whole time period on on those three records, and I think when we started with Passion Fruit, we we kind of dabbled. Rob Rob was you know so comfortable with all the sounds that were new in those days, and with you know the synth sounds, which which were which he he was so adept at. Yeah, right. As a studio musician, and and I think we progressively you know we just started. I think on Passion Fruit, that was just kind of like putting our feet in the pool, you know, and then by the time, by the time we got through the whole thing at, at, you know, at The Camera Never Lives, we were, we were in the deep end of the whole thing, you know, but it was great, I mean, I, I heard so many sounds that I liked in pop music, Uh, didn't always like the compositions I heard, but I, I really liked so many of the sounds I was hearing, it was an exciting period, you know, like, that way, in that regard, like, things were, were just like, the new sounds I thought were really great, and, and Rob was the ideal translator for me. You know, to, yeah. to associate me with those, and, st- and still not, you know, you know, wipe out my uh, my basic, you know, natural. Right Instincts or whatever.
2: Exactly. You know, you you need to know that. Uh, just recently, we spoke with Rob uh, on Inside Music Cast. It's a neat interview, and oh, good. Uh, and we've mentioned uh, a couple of things that he worked on with you. You might want to listen to to that uh, interview. It's 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 really a, a delightful interview about uh, his music and where he comes from, and and we cover cover the whole spectrum. But uh, to your point of the electronic music, I mean, for some reason, I feel that during that time, you really stepped it up a notch and just kicked it into it. It, it was still Groove, you know, except it was a, a faster, it was funkier. The bass lines were really, re, were really cool. In fact, it leads me to to point out not only Rob but Jeff Lorber when he when you worked on with him on, uh, on Dragonfly Summer and Rendezvous in Rio. I mean, right. these guys added a really the cool bass line that it has sort of been not there before. I mean, it, it kicked it up a notch,
1: didn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 Jeff was so great as as rob was also but jeff was you know i i always thought of jeff as kind of you know a Funkmeister, you know yeah, yeah. guy and he certainly is but i mean he was also so great on some of the the, the tunes that were not really like that there, there was one in particular which was a song i kind of you know stole from a musical i wrote about paul gauguin um called the woman in the Ways that
3: oh, i love Jeff that song
1: and arranged yeah and, and, and love so he, he's he's really very versatile but yeah no it he, he's uh he's always been very easy to work with mm-hmm. i remember the i think the first project we did was on um it might have been on uh blue pacific yeah and uh i i um my wife and I spent one month out in San Diego. I still have all my relatives are still there and so we were we were you know visiting and, and I was starting to write and I wanted to work with Jeff. I'd spoken to him uh I'd met I'd met him I guess a couple of times and then I'd spoken to him on the phone and I mm-hmm. said, Well, you know, I got a couple of tunes, why don't I can I come up can I come up to LA and, you know, play him for you. I'm gonna be here for the whole month of October. Yeah, yeah. And he said, Yeah So we I, I, I drove up and played him a couple of tunes and I think the first one was uh, speak to me and I played him speak yeah. to me and he just sat down and started you know like uh, creating tracks and you know playing and and so you know I think a couple hours later we had this this great track for that tune and it had so many nice parts that of course we you know we had real musicians come in and replace like mm-hmm. most of the rhythm stuff but he played this great piano part and the whole time after that, when we were working on the record, he kept wanting to replace his solo. And I said, well, great, you know, go ahead, you know, try it. And he could, you know, the the original solo that he played that very first day, you know, I couldn't, <laughs> I, I, I was, it was just the best thing that I could, you know, it was his first instinct. Yeah. And it was just so perfect. And, uh, we never actually, we used the, the one that, you know, he played just on the first <laughs> day when, when we spent maybe three and a half hours or something, and then I yeah. drove back to San
2: Diego. Isn't that the way it is? You always uh, <laughs> take take the first one, you know? I spent some time with Jeff in his studio a few years back in, in Palisades, and I tell you, he's the best. And he's been a guest of ours here also on Inside Music Cast. And, and uh, his latest uh, release is, uh, I think it was a Grammy nominee uh, this past year and uh didn't come out with it but I tell you it's a wonderful project that uh, his most recent work but uh we we've uh, go, close we're very close friends with Jeff and we appreciate his uh his uh, his work that he's done with you
1: oh well me too
2: oh, yeah
0: you just mentioned San Diego, uh, Eddie, and and we have a correspondent in uh, San Diego by the name of Max Zape, mm-hmm. and he asked a question about uh, uh, your album Dragonfly Summer, and he said he wanted to know why was I Love Lucy picked for Dragonfly Summer. He mm-hmm. said it seems to be such a style diversion from the rest of the tracks.
1: Well, you know, I um, uh, we we moved from La Jolla to Del Mar at a certain point, and and uh, I was raised, you know, Catholic and. I was an altar boy at our little church in Del Mar, and um, Lucy and Desi uh, had a house in Delmar. They they liked the um, Desi, I think probably liked the racetrack. There's a racetrack there. Okay. And and they used to come for the racing season, which was a couple of months in the summer. And they would come to church, you know. And she uh, she wouldn't. He would he would come up and receive communion, and she wouldn't. I don't know why, but. <laughs> I remember being an altar boy, you know, (laughs) like holding that little—I think it's called a paten. I think this little sort of dish. In the old days, you used to have to hold this little dish, like to catch any crumbs when the priest would be, like you know, serving out the communion, right? Mm -hmm. And so I remember holding this little dish for Desi and going, "My God, this is Desi!" You know, this is—and you could see Lucy. Of course, she'd pick her out, you know, of a crowd, you know, with her hair. You know, it looked like it was on fire. You could you could pick her out of a crowd, you know, from about, about five miles away. That's amazing. And it was just so exciting to have, you know, like whenever they would come to, to the mass I served, it was just so exciting to see them. And so I had this, like, idea about I Love Lucy, I guess. And I remember, you know, thinking, hearing the, you know, when you hear the song, you know, uh, 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 in the show, it's like, you know, it's very up-tempo, kind of like, you know, very sort of obvious, and I always thought, "Wow, you know, it would be interesting as a ballad." I think he, he just might have sung it once as about halfway to being a ballad in in one episode. I can't remember which one. It wasn't really about. I went to Gil Goldstein, I, who arranged that and produced that, and I said, "Gil, you know, this is this is kind of a." Different concept, but I really think this is a great song a great ballad. It doesn't sound that great, you know, when you hear it as a theme of the show. It's it's good, but it's it's not really doesn't obviously not a ballad. And I said, so, but I think these changes are really interesting, and actually the lyric is really kind of nice, you know. And and uh, Gil was you know willing to take the trip with me, and so yeah. he, you know we. Um, I I really love that tune, and I just. Yeah. I played uh, I played it on guitar for Gil, you know, in this very kind of ballad way, uh-huh. and uh, he immediately knew what to do with it.
0: Yeah, well, a few seconds ago, too, a few moments ago, you uh, mentioned an album, Blue Pacific, and uh, I think it was at that time is when you crossed paths with Walter Becker, who produced three tracks on that disc and. And, and how did that come about? I mean, there seems to be a, a very deep respect between you, Walter, and, and Donald. And we find, you know, Eddie and I were talking about this, there's, there's definitely some similarities in your music, you know, from a compositional standpoint, you know, great lyrics and, and direction and such a high-level musicianship. How did you guys connect, or how did you connect with, uh, uh, with Walter and Donald?
1: Well, of course, I have I've always been a fan of them and of theirs and of their music, um, and uh, somebody at Warner Brothers hooked us up. Walter was starting to to do some producing independently, and uh, somebody at Warner Brothers suggested him. and I said, "Yeah, it would be great." And we had a, a meeting, and of course, got to work with the great Roger Nichols, you know, who recorded all of it for us. And uh, that, those 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 sessions were so much fun. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to work with Walter again.
0: Well, Michael Franks is our guest today Here on Inside Music Cast And uh, I want to play one of my favorite tracks From his new album, uh, Time Together And this is the track called My Heart Said Wow
4: I guess I never knew love Could ever be true love Life had left me Gigantically anti-romantic I was blue as camo and I never quite understood why. Love passed me by Though it's true that this ditty begins in self-pity, I can promise the ending will be more ascending Cause I've made some revisions since our sweet vision and how Just look at me now I simply surrendered The moment my heart said Wow Ascending Cause I've made some revisions Since our sweet collision And how Just look at me now I I simply surrendered The moment my heart said I simply surrendered The moment my heart said I simply surrendered The moment my heart said Wow:
0: you know, We're just about to wrap up here, but I, I had a question about and I'm kind of going back again talking about your, uh, your, your new album, "Time Together." Are you planning on, on doing any tours uh, for, or shows for this particular album?
1: Well, we, we just rehearsed a couple of the tunes. Um... The um, you know the now that the summer's here, which 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 uh, Shonaki or Shanaki, as the case may be, you know, suggested we do and seem like an obvious choice. And uh, we're also doing. um My heart said, "Wow!" Uh, I work with Veronica Nunn, this great vocalist. Oh yeah, she's been in the band since '93. I she's think. She's great. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Uh, thank you. And so she sang that tune with me, and and uh, we thought, well, that would be a good one to do. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and we're, I'm actually, uh, working more this summer than I have the past few summers. I, and actually into the fall, I, I really kind of, you know, reduced the amount of dates I take, um, uh, just because I, at this point in time, you know, after all these years, I really, I really enjoy staying, staying at home actually, to be honest. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it's always fun to go out and work uh, like a couple of weekends a month. Uh, it's great, you know. Uh, we still we went to Europe last summer. We did some dates, which that was fun, and we went to Japan last year, I guess, and and that's always a lot of fun. I, I love Japan, and, and um, the Japanese have been really, you know, great fans from the very beginning. Um, but yeah, I, I am doing actually more than uh, than I've done recently. So very cool. Be well, out there.
0: we'll have to look for you. <laughs> yeah, well, we do. We do
1: all the old stuff too. I mean, we can't really. There's, there's, I've never liked going to hear my favorites and and hearing an entire new record, you know, like yeah. without hearing all the stuff that you love that oh, you want to hear. So my theory has always been just to add a couple of tunes from any new record and you know see how they fare with the audience and you know and but but still do a cross section of the whole. There's so there's so much material and people are so fond of certain things that it's hard to eliminate. Those tunes that everybody loves, everybody waits, wants to hear. "Rainy Night in Tokyo," the lady wants to know, and you know, "Eggplant," "Popsicle Toes," and some of the ones you've mentioned. Yeah,
2: hey Michael, your son Sean is also in the biz, and he's uh, recorded uh, a few CDs out there. Um, but I think he spent a little time at Berkeley studying, and he started out as a drummer. Is he a keyboardist? And tell us a little bit about uh, his, his music and uh, how uh, basically uh, he took a uh, chip off the old block
1: here. Well. I'm not sure if he's still in music uh-huh, okay. at the point in time. Uh, I know he would hate it if he heard me say that, but <laughs> he, 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 you know, he, you know, it's such a, such a tough business to get in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he started as a drummer and, and studied a little bit, and then he was in a band that was actually quite good. I used to go and see them when they first started. He was just playing drums, and then uh, somehow he started doing background parts, and then uh, Band broke up, and so he sort of went out there yeah. in the front and started writing. And yeah, he's 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 made some some nice records.
2: We can, we can.
0: And then outside of, of music, you're involved with uh, an animal welfare organization called Hearts United for Animals. Is that correct? That's true. And you uh, tell us a little bit about this this cause.
1: Well, we um, first uh, found out about them. We we um, we had had you know dogs and cats always. My wife and I. This is going to be the we're going to have a 35th anniversary soon, and from the very beginning we always had it seemed like we always had two cats and two dogs, and so um, you know when when the when they pass on it's hard to you know it's it's they leave such a hole in your in your life it's, you know and it's it's in fact the title song from the record T- Time Together is about our dachshund and Flora who passed last mm-hmm. year, um, I should say it's, it was inspired by that. Um, but I guess it was maybe um, 98 or so. I, I grew up, my, one of my aunts had dachshunds, and I was telling my wife, Claudia, I was saying, well, you know, these dachshunds are great little dogs, and, and she had never really been around them. We, we ran, naturally, then we, you know, we ran into somebody with dachshunds, and they were really cute. So we said, oh, no, and when it was time, We I think our last dog had passed away a few years before, so we said, well, let's, let's think about getting a dachshund, and we went Online to these breed rescue organizations, mm-hmm. and ended up at Hearts United for Animals, where they uh, rescue dogs who, you know, from puppy mills and some boy, the conditions. in the puppy mills are so appalling,
3: right? You know? Right.
1: And uh, so we said, "Well, that seems like the way to go." And we, you know, we looked around and 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 found this really cute little Doxy and and uh, adopted her, and and uh, that was the beginning of our connection with them. And they just done such great work i mean the they re, they rescue all kinds of you know dogs and, mm-hmm. regardless of breed um but i mean the uh the puppy mill conditions are like in fact our dog flora that we've got two other dachshunds now that we adopted from hearts <laughs> united for animals also but our first one flora she you know was she was really abused um you know, they just keep them and breed them and just try to get as many puppies out of them as they can. They started six months, you know, breeding them, which is really pathetic. And um, they basically just breed them, you know, to death. And um, they ex- would extend their... The place she was from was really horrible. They would extend the food with sawdust, you know. They'd set up oh. dry food and they'd put sawdust in there so that it would be bulk, you know. <laughs> they wouldn't have to use as much food. And they live in these cages, you know, these big sort of like um, places with roofs but with no walls on the side, so it's bitterly cold and, you know, appallingly hot. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's really like, totally inhumane. Mm. And uh, so we were, like, I was really enthusiastic about, you know, getting more involved with them, and in the past I, I uh, have been able to, like, for example, watching the snow, which is a... Holiday record, original holiday stuff I wrote a few years back. Right before I um, licensed it to, I know I guess was the place it went. Yeah, right. I sold it on my website initially for for you know I sold some of them on my website and I was able to you know donate all of those all of that money to Hearts United for Animals. It was oh,
0: well, that's great.
1: Such a big help for them, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I wrote a book of poems. So I well, I'd written poetry. I've always written poetry in the past, and so I finally. Collected them and saw stuff that I write on the road. I've never been able to write songs on the road, but once in a <laughs> while, you know, I, I write a poem, and so I, well, I put that together into a little book and sold that and gave uh, online and gave them, you know, the proceeds from that too. So That's it's, neat. Very, very good. It's a good. It's a really great organization of really dedicated, sincere, you know, people, and it's a great place to adopt a dog. I and mean, they have a whole network of people of you know commercial pilots and private pilots and. The people who, you know, fly the dogs close to, as close to you as they can get. So
3: wow. you,
1: you don't have to, you know, you don't have to drive there. They're in the Midwest. So it's not like you have to go there to get a dog.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's, really neat to know. That's very cool. Yes. Well, Michael, thanks so much for spending time with us. It's been great Absolutely. to learn more about you and, of course, to t- talk about your new album, Time Together. And uh, for more information, uh, fans can go to your website, which I think is just michaelfranks.com, correct? com. Mm-hmm. Correct. Very good. And, that's, and I was
1: recently dragged, you know, kicking and screaming into the world of Facebook, too. So. <laughs> oh,
2: we've, we found you. We found you already, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, was, I felt like, you know, the oldest living Confederate widow, you know. Like, and I was like, well, okay, finally, yeah.
0: I'll get with it. Very oh, good. Whiz, and by man. the way, by the way, the actress in A Touch of Class was Glenda Jackson.
1: That's right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he won the Academy Award. Yeah. That's very right. good.
0: <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us. And, uh, My pleasure. And hopefully we can catch up with you in the future. Great. All thanks, right. Michael. We'll see you. Thanks, thanks right. guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Michael Franks for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zabe, Uwe Wright, and Mikhail Engstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.